We are recording a study in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 12. The subject being the work of the Son, redemption, and those things which flow out from it. Now it is our custom in these meetings to read a portion of scripture together. And those of you who are listening to this recording may like to share with us. If so, I suggest that you switch off for a while and read with us two psalms. Psalm 16 and 17. There's one feature in these two psalms that I think we might just notice before we pass on to Ephesians. That in both there is a reference to a portion. In Psalm 16, the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. And in Psalm 17, the men of the world which have their portion in this life. And both psalms end on the note of resurrection. Thou wilt show me the path of life, in thy presence is fullness of joy, at thy right hand that are pleasures forevermore. And at the end of Psalm 17, as for me, in contrast with these others, I will behold thy face in righteousness, I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Now just a moment or two with regard to Psalm 16, because it will have a bearing upon the word that is used in Ephesians, translated inheritance. The word inheritance, is composed of a word which means to cast a lot. And so we have to this very day an allotment, which is not only a place where you grow vegetables, but something which the lawyer may have to say a word about, an allotment. It is an inheritance which is yours by lot. We do not cast lots today, but that's still incipient in the very word. So you notice, in Psalm 16, verse 5 and 6, the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance, and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. And this goes back to the law which governed the disposition of common land that belonged to a Palestine village. Nobody owned the land personally. It belonged to the community. And once a year, they met together in the house of the chief man, and there they had two bags, And a little child, usually, that was so young that he couldn't do any sort of diddling, he put his hand in the bag, and he pulled out the lot, for the, well, it might be Joseph, or Samuel, or Judah, or whatever the name was, and that was their portion for the year. And you can quite understand that some portions were better than others. And everyone was hoping that they were going to get the good ground that brought forth sixtyfold, or a hundred. But they may possibly get the ground that had got the wayside path on it the trodden piece, or their seed may grow a good deal among thorns. And the psalmist, knowing that, he says, Thou maintainest my lot. As the word almost suggests, Thy hand went down behind the little child's hand and picked out the lot for me. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. But he's preceded all that by saying, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. So will you keep those thoughts in mind with regard to the inheritance of the lot, when we once more turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 12. In our last study, we were dealing particularly with the first great work which is associated with Christ in this epistle. In whom we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. And we drew attention that both the word redemption and the word forgiveness 
both emphasize release. Apoleutrosis is the word for redemption, and luo is the verb to set free or to loose. And the word for forgiveness, athesis, actually is translated in Luke the fourth chapter to set the captive free. And in the Old Testament, it is the word which is used of the jubilee, the year of release. So when we sang our hymn just now, uh, I think it's very fine that we've got a scriptural statement here. Blessed be our Lord Christ Jesus, God's own well-beloved Son, who from sin and bondage frees us. Sin and bondage frees us. Frees us. Makes it at liberty. And then he goes on, shares the glories he hath won. For that's where our inheritance is. Whatever belongs to Christ as the one mediator belongs to every one of those who are in that calling for whom he died. Well now we go on with our study and notice the next um, feature. If possible, I want to touch upon three of the outstanding consequences of this redemption. The first is the mystery of his will in verse 9. The second is the dispensation of the fullness of times in verse 10. And the third is the inheritance of verse 11. So we've got a full program if we're going to give these passages some real examination. First of all, I would like you to realise that um, the word abound in verse 8, wherein he hath abounded toward us, pedisuo means prodigality. There's no sin here. It's no being doled out by weight and measure. It's my cup running over. Now, whenever we speak of salvation, that's how God deals with us. We have the words in Romans, the fifth chapter, which apparently uh, seized upon the mind of John Bunyan, where he wrote his book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Where sin abounded, grace did superabound, as the word is. But the word prudence, which we have in uh, the end of verse 8, means frugality. Very, very carefully doling it out, little by little, bit by bit. Here a line, there a line. So how can we make something abound, flowing over prodigally and very frugally? Well, you may remember that at our last meeting, I suggested that we put the full stop in the middle of the verse and so, in case anyone missed it, I'm going to start with that this evening. Will you read with me again verses 7, 8, and 9, about just remember that there is no punctuation in the original. I'm not taking any liberties, I'm only just pointing out the obvious. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein they are bounded toward us, full stop. Now we start something else in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. Oh yes, little by little, as you are able to take it, he reveals these things. So there we have the two ways in which God deals with us. Overwhelming love, unmixed, <laughs> and then as you are able to bear it, step by step, a little here and a little there. You might like to perhaps test this usage of the word Perisuo, to overflow, 
And we've got it waiting for us in Ephesians 3, verse 20. Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. You see there again, there's no possibility of setting measures to this. And there are other references, if you care to look them up, 2 Corinthians 9, 1, Mark 6, 51, but we'll leave those for the time being. <coughs> the emphasis upon prudence is a word that we should remember ourselves when it comes to our lot to try to teach somebody else. The Apostle has given us his own example that to the babes he gave milk. To the grown-up he went further and gave them meat. But he didn't cross it over. He did say, alas, you are still feeding on milk. When for the time being you ought to be teaching others. Oh, that was a tragedy. But it's equally wrong to go beyond the capacity of your hearer with regard to these things. So, here we have a word in season. And we not be thankful that God has set his pace according to our capacity and not rushed us off our feet. Well, when we come to this first statement in verse 9, this something that he is revealing to us, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. This word mystery, please remember that it does not mean anything like a modern mystery. There's nothing mysterious about the mysteries of Scripture. There may be something mysterious about the mystery of iniquity, because it's iniquity, not because of its mystery. We have no need to turn the lights down, or anything like that. It's in full blaze of light. And think of the number of passages where we have associated with a mystery that it's being made known. Blessed are your eyes, for they see. Others didn't see it, but you have. And the Apostle Paul said unto me, who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should make known this marvellous truth. It's, it's to be made known, but in the right time and through the right channel. But what does it mean by the mystery of his will? Oh, first of all, you might perhaps be uh, aware of this, that just as Abraham had two sons, one the legitimate son, Isaac, or one who was really born because they tried to help God out a little bit wrongly, Ishmael. So, the basis of this word mystery, M-U-E-O, which means to shut the mouth, like that. And it's rather suggestive that even in our language, we have this syllable, M-U, in the word mum and mutter, the various other words, murmur, or come to you, are things which are not quite open. Well, we have this word muio, to shut the mouth. And one of its descendants is musterion, the one we're looking at. And the other is muthos, which is the word myth. And in 1 Timothy 4, the apostle seems to say, those who have heard the teaching of the mystery and shut their eyes to it, will be turned unto myths. But you cannot sit on the fence all the time. You come down one side or the other. And you know, the church may have a responsibility here. The church, through not seeing the truth of the mystery, has emphasized the day of Pentecost. They said, to all intents and purposes, well, let's shut our eyes and pretend we've still got all these gifts. And the man in the street who's been questioning this, he says, well, that's not honest. And he's turned to a myth where he might have been turned to the mystery. So let's see to it 
that we are honest with the word of God. Now then, what does he mean by the mystery of his will? Paul, with this one more question before we get to that question of his will. I think we ought to notice the way in which this word mystery is used in this epistle because it comes six times. Chapter 1, 9, which we looked at. The next one is chapter 3, verse 3. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. This man was making the mystery known to others. But he had to have it made known to him first. And he declares that he didn't have it made known to, unto him as a consequence of his searching the scriptures, but it wasn't there. It had to be revealed to him, even as the Old Testament scriptures were revealed to Moses and the prophets. And then, verse 4, whereby when ye read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. When we come to this passage, we should have to consider the fact that the mystery of Christ is not the mystery of the present dispensation. It's the mystery concerning Christ, which started in it with Genesis 3, the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head, and has been developed and enlarged right unto the day when the Apostle Paul wrote, so that he said, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed. He said, I have got a greater and a fuller knowledge of the secret or mystery of Christ than anyone that went before me. And then again in chapter 3, verse 9, if we have the revised text, and to make all men see what is the dispensation of the mystery. Our version says the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God. And that's one of the characteristics of the mystery. It's been hidden. And it can only be brought to light by being revealed. It cannot be searched by human reason, it cannot be argued about, for we've got no premises to argue from. And then, in chapter 5, 32, when we're in the practical section, he has been speaking about the relationship of husband and wife, so that in the very home you may manifest this marvellous uh, relationship of the church to Christ. And says, after dealing with this, in verse 32, this is a great mystery, but... I'm not going to enlarge further on the mystery of the fact that two human beings brought together in marriage shall be considered one flesh. I'm not going on with that anymore. I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. That is another mystery. And then the last reference is chapter 6, verse 19, when this man asks for prayer. Not that he was praying for them, he now asks that they should pray for him that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Now, those of us who are acquainted with the uh, presence of number in Scripture might be tempted to hope and to wish that there were seven references to mystery in the epistle to the Ephesians. Six is an ominous number, isn't it? It's the number of man. It's the number of imperfection. It's the number that uh, belongs to the things of evil. Is there any significance? Yes, there is. It's the same thing with the armour that God has provided. From one point of view, it's the perfect thing. It's the panoply of God. But it's only got six parts to it. Oh, you say, what a pity. But friends, you're not going to march about in armour when you get to glory, are you? 
What do you want helmets for and breastplates for or even swords for when the last enemy that's to be destroyed is death and they've all gone, all subject to his feet? So you see, you never need, ought to have had an armour even given by God. And again, speaking humanly, there never ought to have been a mystery. There never would have been any mysteries if there never been any enemy and never been any evil. So it's all right. It's all on good for all fours. The six is right. It belongs to the period when the enemy is active. Now we have an illustration of the use of this term, the mystery of his will. It's found in classical Greek literature and it refers to a, a king, a heathen king, who was going to war and was concerned that the mystery of his will should not leak out to the enemy. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? That's exactly the reason why it's here. We may look upon the will of God from two points of view. We can look upon the will of God in the obvious, superficial, evident will of God. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's take two illustrations. Adam was created in the image and likeness of God. He was given dominion over the works of God's hands, and he was there set as the vice-regent, visibly on earth, of the invisible God. And did it work out like that? No. Instead of it going right straight forward, and that couple living happy ever afterwards, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and when that took place, God revealed the mystery, the secret of his will. Instead of Adam and Eve being condemned to death on the day that they sinned, they had a reprieve instead. Why? Why, because before Adam was created, Peter tells us that before the foundation of the world, Christ had been all very before ordained as a lamb without blemish and without spot. But he never said that. He never said to Adam, now if you do sin, don't worry. Oh, no. You see? That's the mystery of his will. Redemption. What again, let's take the case of Abraham. He came out of the Chaldees, responding to the call of God. He entered into the land of Canaan, which God said he'd given to him. But he didn't settle down and live there happy ever afterwards. Why not? Sin entered into the question. The Canaanite entered into the question. So he had to be told, when a horror of great darkness settled upon him, that that very elect people, who were destined to be a holy nation and a royal priesthood, and a blessing to all the nations of the earth, instead of that, they were going down into Egypt to suffer bondage and to be delivered from Egypt by redemption back again. Fantastic, isn't it? But it's going on all through God's purposes. Let's come to our own calling, you and me. If we have received grace enough to see ourselves in Ephesians 1, what do we read? That we were chosen in Christ before the overthrow of the world. Well, why ever didn't we go straight away to glory the moment we were created. Well, we didn't, did we? When we came into this world, if we'd had any knowledge about it, instead of being in Christ, we were in Adam. We were flesh and blood which cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and we had to be redeemed and delivered out of that and put into Christ. You see, it all goes the same way. It always comes down like that, and then up the other side, instead of straight across. And that's because, not of any caprice, in the heart of God. It's because there is a most potent, 
spiritual enemy. And God did not reveal all his purposes at once because he would take the wise in his own craftiness and the people that he did for others he often fed into himself. Now, we are particularly associated interested in the mystery of Ephesians because that's where our calling comes. But don't you see this is following the same line? The enemy had attacked the uh, vital part of God's purpose. And the vital part of God's purpose up to that present time was vested in the people of Israel. If he could stop Israel becoming the vessel and channel of blessing to the rest of the earth, he put a spoke in God's wheel. And there wasn't a single word in the Old Testament or in the Gospels to tell us what God would do if Israel failed. It was all being built upon the fact that they were going to be the chosen people, they were going to be the kingdom of priests and so on. But when Christ presented himself, they rejected him. And in rejecting him, they rejected themselves. And you can imagine the evil one standing back, rubbing his hands together and realising that he'd done what he set out to do. And then to his horror, God revealed that he had a purpose that was in his own heart before the overthrow of the world. And that the poor outside Gentile, who had no hope, no fathers, no covenants, no evident relationship with God at all, had been chosen to be members of the body of Christ and blessed with every spiritual blessing. And that's what God is still doing. So you see, this mystery has a very important part to play in illuminating the purpose of God and our calling and relation to it. Now let's take another step. We come to the word inheritance in verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. We have obtained an inheritance. If we go back into the usage of this word in the Old Testament scriptures, we discover that it doesn't mean so much that we have obtained, but that we have been taken for. Sometimes there was a need in Old Testament history to discover who it was that was guilty of a certain sin. And so a certain tribe was taken. And then a certain family was taken. And then a certain individual's tent was taken. And Achan was discovered as the guilty one. Now that's the word, to be taken. Now here's a point. <coughs> Supposing we revise it then. Verse 11, in whom also we were taken as an inheritance. Now please don't say this off. Well, that's robbing us. Let's wait a minute. The highest honour that God could give to the tribe of Levi in Israel was to give them no inheritance in the land. The other tribes had their different portions. Judah, and Benjamin, and Issachar, Nathan, and so on. But the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe, God said practically to them, I will be your portion. What an honour. But on the other hand, that was said also of the whole people of Israel. He said, I am your portion. 
but it didn't rob them of having an allocation in the land. So we've got this two, these two thoughts when we look upon this passage. We ourselves will have an inheritance, for we are definitely said not only to be sons of God, but heirs, heirs with Christ. A marvellous inheritance is already sketched out with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. But it's added to and made far more glorious by the fact that God himself is going to find his portion in his people. I believe that's true of all callings, and it's certainly true here. Now, when we come to the next section of this epistle to the Ephesians, we shall find that the inheritance is a subject of prayer. If you'll notice um, verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You see, it's still there. Not your inheritance in heaven, but his inheritance in the saints. So there we are. We are God's portion. It's almost breathless to say, isn't it? It's wonderful enough to think that we may have a portion. It would be beyond our deserts if we had a portion on the very edge of the land of Palestine. We don't deserve it. It would be beyond our deserts if we were doorkeepers in the heavenly Jerusalem, wouldn't it? But here, we're not only said to be raised together and seated together where Christ sits at the right hand of God, but he's given us more. He says, and over and above all that, you are a part of my inheritance. This is a subject that you could pursue a long way. It begins to open a question which sometimes occurs to, to us in other connections. Why did God create anybody at all? Theology tells us that God is self-sufficient. He depends upon nothing external to himself. And the theologian seems to picture, picture to us a God who for countless ages of eternity was sitting like some Buddha or some Sphinx with glazed eyes looking out over eternity just simply occupied with himself. Well, I know nothing about that and neither do you, friends. For we have no revelation given us of God except of God who was active and working. The greatest worker in the whole universe is the living God. He enters the scriptures as the creator. And when you come to think of creation, what a tremendous responsibility and burden it seems. Not only to make and to fashion and devise, but to keep it all going. Now why was God moved to do such a thing? And God who knew the end from the beginning knew more than that, friends. He knew not only that he was going to bring into this world creatures that would depend upon him, but he was going to bring into this world at least one creature that would tug his very heartstrings. He knew before he made man that man was going to need redeeming love, and that meant sparing not his own son in the fullness of time. And God did it all knowing that. It's almost impossible, isn't it, for us to encompass such love, such grace, and such purpose. And we're, here we are, right in the middle of it all, woken up by his mercy at some time to see that we have a need, 
to see that he's made this provision and to discover that marvellous as redemption is, it's only the beginning, not the end. It's the opening of a door, but what lies beyond that door, I have not seen, nor ear heard. And when we get to glory, every one of us will be gasping out the words of the Queen of Sheba, Behold, the half was not told me. Even the Apostle has to turn to prayer in this chapter, that you may know what is the riches of the glory of this inheritance. When you say, why don't you tell me, Paul? Well, he says, it's a, such a character that the only way you'll learn it is by personal contact with the giver himself. So he puts a very great place on fellowship in prayer, if you would get to know the deeper things that pertain to this calling. Well, now we come back again for a moment to verse 10. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation, now the words that in, might be better rendered with a view to, unto. This purpose, which he purposed in himself, was with a view to, a dispensation of the fullness of times. The next reference to a dispensation is chapter 3, verse 2. If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, and the third reference in the revised text is verse 9, the dispensation of the mystery. Now those two references in chapter 3 belong to the present time. The dispensation of the grace of God, the dispensation of the mystery. Does the dispensation of the fullness of times refer to some time in the future? Or is it another title of the present moment? Well that may be a moot point. When Christ came, according to Galatians, and that's only just one page back, chapter 4, when Christ came, he came, chapter 4, verse 4, in the fullness of time. Now that word time is chronos, the word that gives us chronology, and chronometer, and even the word chronic, when a person's rheumatism is chronic, it's lasting all the time. I hope you'll be glad you know that next time you feel the twinges. It's rather cold comfort, perhaps. That time <coughs> is the same winter or summer. It's six o'clock in summer. It's six o'clock in winter. That's time. But the word used in Ephesians is not time. It's a great pity. This word is the word season. It's not the word chronos, it's the word kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S. Now kairos means opportunity, it means something seasonable, it means something that doesn't always happen. You see, time is with us day by day, but harvest isn't with us day by day, that only comes at a certain period. Now this word season means some period of time which is peculiarly apt. Like the Apostle said of his teaching in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, our version says, to be testified in due time. The original says, a testimony for its own peculiar season, which is now seasonable. Well now, 
This is all in view to a dispensation of the fullness of the seasons. And of all the epistles, or the New Testament as a whole, these epistles are the epistles of the fullness. We have them here at the end of chapter 1. Christ is head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fitteth all in all. That's the type of the church. And when you come to the epistle to the Colossians, again we have, as you remember in chapter 1 and chapter 2, this stress upon the fullness. It says in chapter 119, For it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. And in um, verse 9 of chapter 2, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And verse 10 says, Ye are complete, or ye are filled to the full in him. Fullness. Well, it's not to be uh, not to be expected otherwise that God should denominate the time in which we live as the dispensation of the fullness of the seasons. No other dispensation reaches such a height. In fact, in Colossians 1, when the Apostle says that the ministry that he received fulfilled the word of God, he didn't mean to say it fulfilled some promise that was made before by Isaiah or Zechariah because they never knew anything about it. He means it completes the word of God. Without the four prison epistles, with their marvellous revelation of ultimate truth, the word of God is incomplete. It gives a jolt to some evangelical Christians, God-fearing, Bible-loving Christians, to be solemnly told, wouldn't it, that they're walking about with an incomplete Bible. Do it gently, friends, if you if you have to, but sometimes do it. And they'll say, well, what do you mean? Incomplete Bible. I believe all scripture is given by inspiration of God. I believe it from Genesis to Revelation. Say, yes, I know, friend, I know. But the territory that you know least about is Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And they're the ones you ought to know most about. That incomplete Bible, is it? So we have here a dispensation of the fullness of the seasons. Now, what is he going to do with them? Our version says that he might gather together in one all things in Christ. And that leads the mind to think of the day when Christ returns and his kingdom is set up because of the usage of this word, gather together. Well, again, you'll search in vain for the word gather. It isn't there. If you look at an English concordance that gives you the original words, they won't know what to do with it because there's no word gather here. But what is here is very suggestive. Let me give you once more, turn you once more to the last two verses of this chapter. He hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that finneth all in all. Now the word head in the Greek language is kephali. K-E-P-H-A-L-L-E. Kephali. Now the word gathered together in one, listen to it, is anakephaleomai. Now you don't know a single word of Greek, you can hear it, can't you? Kephaleomai. Anakephaleomai. What anna means? Up. It says, says to head up. Head up. So don't you see what's, what's being suggested here? That the church of the one body at this present time 
is the finest and the fullest and the last typical uh, example of what the glorious day will come when God is all in all. The heading up now of the church which is the body is a church which is ultimately going to have this most marvellous title, the fullness of that one that fills all. And so it's called a dispensation of the fullness of the seasons when he will head up in himself all things. And this is a word you want to watch. All things without the article being may be universal, but all things very often is restricted and sometimes, as there's one example which I think you do well to keep very much in your mind of the use of this particular word with the article D in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8. It's nothing to do with blessing, but it gives you an example of the use of the term. Colossians 3, 8. Now ye also put off all these now that's the translation of tar panta. Ta is the neuter plural, the. And the word the in the Greek language originally was a demonstrative pronoun. It was something that pointed to something and said that's the one that I mean. And to this very day if we say the man or the book or the street, we mean that one, don't we? So whenever you have tar pantar, the all things, remember that it's, it's those particular things that have been just mentioned. In our Wednesday meetings, you might as well share with us in this, we have been giving some considerable time to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And here we have an illustration. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 and 18. Therefore if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. We change that to a new creation, as it should be, because the word creature in the English language doesn't always mean what God means. We speak about creature comforts. That's a cup of nice hot coffee when it's a cold night. Oh, that's a very nice way to say Nothing to do with the fact of creation. And we say, oh, he's the, he's the creature of so-and-so. That means a poor, crawling individual who's hanging on to his job by pleasing his boss. Oh, no. So we say, no, 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 don't say that. We'll have the true word, a new creation. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. Now we have to change the words here a little bit to keep just exactly what Paul said. He didn't say all things have become new, for that suggests that some of the old things might have become new, but they don't. No, no. Behold, new things have come into being. All the old things are gone, and the new things, all the new things are new because they've been brought in by creative power. And, now look, verse 18, and the old things are of God. Now, there are some who would lift out verse 18 and say, there you are in the text, all things are of God. And they intend us to believe that God is the author of sin and wickedness and evil, just the same as all. But he's not saying that at all. He's only talking about these all things that belong to the new creation. That's the truth. All the new things in the new creation are of God. So, that he might gather together in Christ all things. 
But there never be evil and wicked things in Christ. That's a contradiction of terms. They may be in the world. They may be in the flesh. They may be lying in the arms of the wicked one. They may be in Adam and die. But only in Christ are those things which remain and which have the touch of immortality and the blessing of God. So here we have a verse which puts our particular calling right into the very centre of God's purpose. That he's made known this mystery of his will to us and he says that this purpose has in view this dispensation of the fullness of the seasons and in that dispensation of the fullness of the seasons Christ is the one who heads up all things in himself. <coughs> Just at the present moment he is not head over all things and the scripture doesn't say he is. Let's read verse 22 again. And have put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Oh yes. Presently, he'll be all things to all that are there, whether they're in the church or the kingdom or any other calling. But at the moment, he's despised and rejected still by the outside world. But within this circle, he's honoured in his glorious call a position as head, head over all things to the church, which is his body. That glorious anticipation of the day which is yet to come. So here we have the climax dispensation of scripture. As far as my interpretation goes, there's going to be no new dispensation follow this. What is going to follow this one is picking up the threads that have been laid down. The Acts of the Apostles and the early Pentecostal period has got to start again. Where it left off. Israel have got to come into the scene and look upon him whom they pierced after all this lapse. No new dispensation. We're at the very zenith of the purpose of God. And you can illustrate this by the figure of a pyramid. We can build a pyramid like this with a series of layers. And we can start with Adam and Abraham and various other callings. But there's only one which is a perfect pyramid. All the rest is anticipating it or waiting for it and never complete. So I can take that off if I like. But if I do, that's the shape of things in the scriptures. That's my incomplete life. But if I put that on, that is the dispensation of the fullness, that is the complete thing, and the top one is the one that anticipates the lot. Well now, verse 10, that, in, that with a view to a dispensation of the fullness of seasons, he might head up all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So that while we distinguish between the heavenly calling and the earth, as another side to be considered, they're never going to be separated in the sense of watertight compartments. While it may be wise for us to keep the various callings and the different spheres of blessing distinct, they're all united in Christ, for there's only one Saviour, there's only one Redeemer. He who is King of Israel is also the Bridegroom and also the Head. And if we go further with that figure, if Christ is the Bridegroom, and the church 
of those elect ones that will have an access to the New Jerusalem constitute the bride? Well, if that bride is made up of a few million believers, well then the, the bridegroom side ought to be made up of a few million believers to keep it balanced. And so we read the church of the one body in the epistle to the Ephesians is the perfect man. And that word ania never means a woman, for it is translated husband in the very next chapter. So that you see, the sheer fact that there are two companies of the redeemed, one called the perfect husband, and the one called the perfect bride, instead of them being in watertight compartments, they're very close together, aren't they? But they don't confuse one another, their callings are distinct, even as they are in this life. It almost sounds too good to be true that there's such a company that could ever be called a perfect husband. Friends, keep up your spirits, there will be one day. Well now, we come on then to the conclusion of this first section. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance or been taken for an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Notice the other reference to predestination, verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption. Now we saw when we were examining this term that it meant giving you the firstborn's position, the heir to the inheritance. And the next time he mentions predestination, it is to do with an inheritance. And some people go off the deep end over this word predestination, but it never says that anyone's ever been predestinated to salvation or the forgiveness of sins. They're either predestinated to an inheritance, or they've been predestinated to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Who's going to quarrel with that? There are other aspects of this phase of teaching which come under the heading of election, which would have to be considered separately. But here we have just this one word, and it means to mark off beforehand someone to a position or an office or a calling. And that's what God has done. So the will of the Father predestinated some to the adoption, and the work of the Son has accomplished it. That's exactly what Christ came to do. The will of him that sent him. You and I were chosen before the foundation of the world to an inheritance, but like the book of Ruth, we've lost the lot. And then like the great Boaz, Christ steps in and becomes the great kinsman redeemer to bring it all back again. Well, that's anticipating what we're going to look at next time. You see, it merges. It says in verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. And then afterwards, it speaks about an earnest, in verse 14, until the redemption of the purchased possession. So there's a redemption in the future. And not a deliverance from bondage, but the redeeming of a possession. And that is going to be ours in the day of redemption, which is in chapter 4, verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. But it's too vast a subject to embark on that at the end of our study. All I would ask you now to consider is the insistence in this opening section upon the fact that here is a will that has our blessing and our uh, a blessing beyond dreams 
in view. Not an arbitrary will, not a hard, frowning will, but a will that's fraught with nothing but good, which cannot be defeated. Would you notice it then? In, uh, say, the end of verse 5, according to the good pleasure of his will. And then as we've had it before, we'll have it again, there's a mystery connected with that will. But it's according to his good pleasure again, which he hath purposed in himself. And then yet once more in verse 11, when the inheritance has been spoken of, it's according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Could you have it fortified more? However much God should speak. When he spoke to Abraham, he confirmed it with an oath. Well, it's very fine to think that God hasn't confirmed this with an oath. I think we're glad to look up into his face and say, you needn't say any more, Lord. This is so marvellous, it's so wonderful, that we are sure that such a purpose cannot be defeated and will go through to its ultimate and most glorious end. For Christ is the instrument of it. His redeeming love begins it. His present session at the right hand of God carries it through, and when he's manifested in glory, every single member of the body, of which he's the head, are destined to be manifested with him. So shall we leave it there, and pray that we may enter into these things, for they have been bought for us with a price, even as we have ourselves.